Hello everyone, I'm Ellen and welcome to this week's episode of EduTech XP. Have you ever played Minecraft? Roaming the open world where everything is a cube to dig for ore in deep dungeons and building the most elaborate constructions? Or just taming a llama, trading with the villagers and fighting the ender dragon? This doesn't sound much like an educational game now, does it? Today we will be talking to Ryan Cutsforth, who has used Minecraft successfully to students to teach them about, for example, math and history in this gaming environment. Ryan, who has been working as a technology instructor and is now employed by the Portland Public Schools District as technology specialist, brings the young generation in contact with a broad spectrum of what technology has to offer. The barriers he and his students encounter are manifold and have to be overcome one by one. Digital literacy is a central topic that applies not only to children who might not have had the chance yet in their lives to encounter a large number of technical devices due to, for example, economic disadvantages they face. It also applies to their families and the teachers, who might be burdened with similar issues on top of time restraints and outside expectations that need to be met. The stories you will hear in a moment will shed some light on these hurdles, as well as provide some encouraging examples how educational technology can make a difference in a child's life. Let's begin. Tell me about your work. Certainly. Uh, I, I would consider myself a, a jack-of-all-trades. I like to be involved in a lot of different things. Professionally, uh, what I've been doing is working in a capacity of technical support for all age levels of education, so from kindergarten uh, all the way up to 12th grade, so the end of uh, secondary school. And currently, I'm working as a on-site technical support person for a K-8 through school, as well as a middle school, so that's grades 6 through 8. And uh, those schools are within the Portland area, and they are currently sponsored by Verizon, mm -hmm. one of the largest telecom companies. And uh, they have provided a grant for the school district that I work in to provide one-to-one -one Chromebooks and 30 gigabytes of monthly data for students that are in socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. So a lot of folks that, are, um, that have a lot of, of financial barriers, technological barriers, Verizon has worked to get devices in the hands of all of these students. So in the last few weeks, I actually just started my position here at the, at the Portland Public School District. And I've, for the last three, three and a half weeks, I've been overseeing the distribution of all of these devices to thousands of students. And uh, it, has been, it has been utterly exhausting, but, uh, but ultimately pretty rewarding. Portland is is a, a it's it's not a geographically large city, but it's there's there are a, a whole lot of folks in the population, and um, there's a, a very large student body, and it just so happens that there are a lot of students that are in economically disadvantaged locations. So it's nice to be able to uh, well help help roll out the offering of uh, of such a good opportunity for them. Definitely, definitely. Is this has come as part of uh, support after the corona situation because they couldn't go to school? So this program began prior to COVID. I think the, the program began outside of Portland, I want to say seven or eight years ago. It just so happened that uh, when COVID started, it just tied in really well to the program. So it ended up being a really a really advantageous thing for all of these kids to be able to get access to the internet so that they can complete their schoolwork. 
there there are a ton of barriers that that, that their families are dealing with for example there's there's literacy barriers there's uh, of course financial barriers there's housing barriers so there's a lot of ways that uh, that it's positively impacted students so yeah right literacy in terms of the families not being able to read or in terms of digital literacy both actually um, okay. primarily the biggest the biggest barrier of course is there are parents and, and family members that aren't necessarily literate imagine being a student with parents that aren't able to read the permission slips that you that, that you bring home or the the schoolwork that you bring home so that's definitely another barrier that's scary to have to, to think about dealing with yeah very true and it's very lucky that they get made available the technology Absolutely. to bridge that and to help that yes. So you're mainly working with um, Chromebooks at the moment? Yes, at the moment. And do you have any special software to, that you already install on that? Do you set them up in any specific way for the students? So all of the Chromebooks come preloaded with Chrome OS. So pretty much anything that you can imagine uh, Google Workspace related. So, you know docs and sheets and, and things like that. Um, there are a number of proprietary Portland Public School applications that are in use. Mostly it's it's administrative and, and, and account management software that's in use. Um, and then there's a lot of other third-party companies and, and services that are in use, like uh, math and literacy and all, all sorts of stuff. Is that something, not the government, but some <laughs> higher ups decide about, or do the teachers actually decide about what gets on there? Um, so most teachers work within cohorts. They work within teams that kind of, essentially a lot of data is collected. And oftentimes those teams, uh, in, in a committee sort of way, they, they sort of determine what makes the most sense for the student body. Ultimately, the, the school district administrators do make those decisions. They, a lot of times, it does boil down to uh, boils down to, to economics and cost. Of course, I, I wouldn't say that uh, that it's governmental or governmentally decided, but it definitely goes through a lot of bureaucracy and and uh, sort of that red tape before before it gets launched to the students. Okay, would you say there's anything experimental in there? Anything that's really exciting for you? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's there's always teachers that are going. To to be uh, kind of pushing the envelope, so to speak, and trying to think outside of the box at, at risk of using another cliche. I would say that that's definitely on a teacher-by-teacher -teacher basis, sometimes a school-by-school -school basis. Prior to my work here at the Portland Public School District, I worked for the Beaverton School District, which is, uh, so the, the uh, Portland metro area is the largest school district in my state of Oregon, and uh, Beaverton School District is the third largest. Um, so I worked there. Um, I worked as a technology instructional assistant, so that's where I gained a lot of my expertise with directly instructing students and using uh, like hands-on uh, usage of these uh, educational technologies. And when I was there, uh, I'm going to ask, I'll preface it, have you heard of the game Minecraft? Yes. Yes. So Minecraft, uh, at the time, it was owned by a private company called Mojang that, that developed it from scratch. About that time, Microsoft purchased it for about three billion U.S. dollars. It's quite a sizable chunk. And so Microsoft helped launch with a huge community. They helped launch the Education Edition. And the Education Edition was really, really built upon the work of a lot of teachers and students that helped kind of build teaching lessons or build lessons, build like individual lessons, as well as integrating with existing curriculum. And I, uh, I helped oversee the launch of that at Beaverton School District. So what I did was I, I tested uh, one of my fifth grade classes. So at the school that I worked in, 
I got a license for all of the students in that class. And we, at first, at first it was just game time. We played and just had a good time and had fun. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually I worked with a few other fifth grade teachers, uh, who were able to, uh, we were able to integrate some of their existing curriculums. So there were some social studies components. There were some mathematic components as well. And eventually the other, some other folks in the district got wind of that. And, uh, and so what I was able to do is I was able to help launch Minecraft for the entire school district. And so that definitely isn't necessarily well, I would say it is It is kind of an outside-the-box thing because it's not necessarily something that, you know, the government is going to push to push to the schools to, hey, have the kids play Minecraft in, a, yeah. in an educational sense. Um, so I was able to help leverage that and help get that into, into the students' devices and, and be able to have them play it and eventually learn with it. And that's that, I would say, is probably the most impromptu or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? One of the more out there ideas, one of the more <laughs> not by really the book impressive. ideas. So how does learning actually happen in Minecraft? You said integrate, you said implement it? Absolutely. There are a lot of different ways that you can implement all sorts of learning. So, for example, we had second graders using Minecraft. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the gameplay, but essentially you mine a block. And each block is supposed to be one meter squared, cubed rather. And using, for example, the distance from a player to another part in the game was a certain number of blocks. And we used that to teach discrete mathematics to the students where five is, is, is a subset of six, which is a subset of seven. Um, right. And so kind of teaching basic uh, numeral, uh, numeracy to, to these students. Um, going up in the grades when uh, we were working with the fourth graders, they were learning uh, history. There's this very famous game in the States called the Oregon Trail, and it's a very popular game. It was a long time ago a very popular game. It was just an old 2D game, really simple graphics, just really just kind of silly text-based game. And there was a number of, of educators that actually turned that game into a 3D game based within Minecraft. And so there was this whole litany of all these educational routes of, of little bits of history, bartering and trading, utilizing livestock. All sorts of, uh, of these implementations with, with history. Um, right. And with fifth graders, we were able to leverage some social-emotional learning. So with utilizing digital citizenship, sort of that, that whole campaign to try to essentially make the students better able to navigate online interactions. Um, and using Minecraft for the chat function or the voice chat function, having to work together to use, you know, different blocks and different uh, resources for different build goals and build tasks. That was one of my favorite activities was, was watching the students work together. That sounds amazing. I'm really impressed. That just adds up onto the what Minecraft can do for me. I was just, I heard about a story where they created a virtual library in Minecraft for all those countries where you are censored. Mm -hmm. in your opinion, and you can't really talk and can't really publish your work as a poet or, or someone with an opinion. And because Minecraft was available, they just put it all in this online library, sort of to spread their thinking. That's fantastic. I don't think I've heard of that. Wow. How do teachers and students and families react to these sort of novel approaches? 
Well, I would say that first with the teacher's perspective, obviously sticking close to the requirements from the state or from, from the government, uh, it's very important to, to maintain those criteria and be able to follow those criteria. So I think they were very appreciative when I was able to approach some of their curriculum integration with supporting evidence that their goals were being met. I think that goes a really long way. If you can ensure to a teacher that all of the things that they want done are still being done within the lens of maybe doing something else a little something different uh, that goes a long way Um, with parents I think it's their perspective on kind of going with something a little bit different I think it really depends on on how they see their students interacting with it and how they see their students benefiting from it. So with with that in mind, I'll, I'll kind of preface that with saying that, as you can imagine, students are sitting in school for eight, nine hours a day, and the main thing that they want, the only thing that they want these days, is more screen time. And <laughs> there are so many opportunities to hand a screen in front of a child and have them waste their entire day uh, and, and do things that are, are not worthy of their time, that are not worthy of their attention. Uh, but being able to... Tricking them is the wrong word. It's not the right word to use, but being able to kind of do that uh, um, almost a sleight of hand, like here's something really fun that you really love and that you love to do on your own time, but here's also something that's meaningful for adults. And then next thing you know, they're going through their, their curriculum, their tests are getting better, their reading comprehension is getting better, their numeracy is getting better, and the parents see that as well. And that's really the trick to getting parents on on board with ideas and kind of abstract uh, approaches to education is as long as they can see the results and as long as the students are engaged meaningfully, then that goes a really long way as well. Yeah, it's basically about taking something students are already using anyway and yeah. just redirecting them to a bit of a more helpful activities. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right. Is there anything you would love to implement well, the easy answer would be Minecraft, uh, but I, I haven't I haven't been here quite long enough at, at the Portland District to, to get that started, but I, I'm, I'm confident that I will be able to, to get going with that. But And this might not necessarily answer your question, but what would be amazing would be free internet for the entire student body. Uncapped a- access, no limits to data, that would be a, a Herculean task. It would be almost impossible to do, on paper at least, but I think uh, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of, of free information and not having information behind any barriers and being able to, to give that to students, especially where it will empower them to continue learning and empower them to continue uh, you know, observing the world and, and hopefully changing the world. That would be a great step, It'd be a really great step talking about if you give them free internet access they also need the skills to traverse that do you think that is already existent no i don't i think i think that that needs to be worked on i think that that should be as important scholastically it should be as important as reading and writing and and working with numbers learning how to effectively maneuver the internet learning how to deal with some of the things that that one can find on the internet dealing with the the sheer amount of information that can be had on the internet. I, I don't know how old you are. I am 32. Uh, so I was on the internet 
my family got their our first computer in 1999 and we had a very very slow internet connection and i was a very curious teenager and sometimes i would look at jokes that i i might not you know i probably shouldn't have have looked up uh sometimes would look at you know certain photos and or you know just uh, you know jokes and funnies and things like that and back then it wasn't really easy to it wasn't easy to curate or even offer censorship for for information and so you know if i find if i found a website that wasn't that i shouldn't have been on well it took a long time to load the website so between loading websites i had time to think about the things that i saw and kind of figure out how those things made me feel versus nowadays you hand a kid a, a, a smartphone and they can access uh, they, they have access to hundreds of thousands of millions of videos in high definition and 4k uh, at the at the drop of a hat within an instant and yeah. they don't have time to conceptualize the things that they're looking at and the things that they're seeing, they don't have time to figure out how it makes them feel personally. And uh, I, I understand the dichotomy of giving a kid unfettered, complete, free access to internet, and also hoping, hopefully, teaching them the skills to to kind of cope with what they're seeing. I think that that, that goes hand in hand for sure. Um, and, and in a perfect world where there is free internet, hopefully the the digital citizenship is, is something that can be taught right along in lockstep with numbers and, and letters and reading and writing and all that good stuff. When you worked with students, was that part of the things you taught them about? Yes, it was. Uh, there, uh, at least in the school districts that I've worked for, uh, both Portland and Beaverton, Uh, digital citizenship was definitely a, a strong component of some of the things that we, that we were teaching the students. Um, a lot of that has to do with, with digital safety, for example, keeping your password safe, uh, making sure that you're not speaking with people online that you don't know, um, you know, stranger danger, so to speak. Um, You know, making sure that uh, that you're visiting websites that are safe, that visiting websites that are uh, that are specifically meant for for their particular age group. Um, so there there was a lot of work in making sure that students were given access to the right places. But one thing that I noticed didn't really get touched on was what to do or how to navigate a situation where a student might come across something that they shouldn't be seeing. And that was one thing that I tried to implement as much as I can. Obviously, I didn't show websites to students that you know yeah. didn't show anything that they shouldn't have been seeing uh, but but there were there were a lot of uh, moments where I did give students the opportunity to kind of seek guidance during during those situations um, I did work with one of the uh, school guidance counselors so um, nothing nothing too intensive but I think in the future that's definitely something that I want to I want to pursue even more is just giving students that opportunity and that option to really find outside help to deal with things that are just constantly coming into their to their devices, you know, all these, uh, you know, there's misinformation, there's, there's politics that it seems like nothing is being fact-checked anymore. It's, there's just so many different ways that you can really kind of confuse a child and make a child not feel good. Um, and kind of being able to give them the tools to, to get through that would be, that would just be perfect. That sounds very honorable. Yeah, thank you. Did you get any sort of aha moments in your students that they were like, oh my god, now I get why I can't trust this website, or that you saw them really understanding what you were talking about? Hmm. Yeah, uh, there was a <laughs> uh, one specific incident that I can think of. There was a, 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 I think it was a third grade class, yeah, eight years old, 
that at that point, those students were getting very simple passwords. So usually it was just a single passphrase with two very short words, for example, hat dog. And there was one instance where there were these two students sitting next to each other. And one of the students, for lack of a better term, hacked the other student's account. Uh, they could read the student, the other student's the student ID number, which was their username. And of course, saw the password and they ended up using their computer and going on different websites and playing different games that the other student normally wouldn't have done and seeing the abject horror and betrayal on the one student's face how she didn't understand how somebody could do that and that was i, I recall that moment uh, just kind of pointing the other students in the class to that example and saying this is real something like that could actually happen Somebody can access something that you don't want them to access if you're not really, really careful. It was funny, but I wasn't able to laugh in the moment because it probably wouldn't have gone over well. But um, that's that's one of my favorite examples of, hey, this is this is real world stuff and you really should probably pay attention. <laughs> We talked about distributing Chromebooks to students who don't have as much access, mm -hmm. I would suppose. What is the situation of technology in classrooms in general? That's a very good question. So it really depends on the school. It, de it depends on the district. Generally speaking, I would say that students are discouraged from bringing their own devices just because it's, from an academic standpoint, it's impossible to police a computer that you don't have control over. Um, even from a support perspective, you know, if some if something happens to a laptop that a student brings in that their parents bought for them, it's a long process of getting permission for from a parent to repair something on this computer. So I think generally speaking, as a rule, it's it's preferred that students don't use outside technology. But I think as you get as students get older, so when they're in uh, high middle school or high school, they are it's probably more lenient uh, because uh, students, you know, they, they like to use what's comfortable. They like to use what they're what they're familiar with. So, and it's, it's also a little bit more difficult to police an older student than it is a, uh, a younger student. So, um, yeah, I think it, it just depends on, on a few factors like that. So, yeah, I, th I think largely speaking, it's, it's, it's encouraged that any technology that's used is used in a, a, a sensible, uh, sensible way. The problems you run into with the technology, like, are those mostly connected to issues with the technology or the software, or are they related to the user not using it in the most appropriate way? That's a very, very good question. Uh, I would say that most of the re requests for support that I get, I would say they're, they're mostly in relation to accidents. So a student might have carelessly placed their uh, laptop precariously on the edge of their desk, and you know they, they try to sneak by and it falls over and the screen cracks. Uh, or, you know, they'll spill something on their keyboard or, you know, the screen gets destroyed somehow. My dog ate my homework, you know, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say that's definitely mostly accidental. But of course, that's not to say that there are a lot of issues that come up that are a result of, of poor digital literacy. So, for example, I'll, I'll get requests from students asking for help creating desktop shortcuts or creating something in their favorites menu. Of course, there is a threshold with the student's age, so the younger students, of course, aren't going to know how to do that. Um, but every once in a while, we'll get a high school student that doesn't know how to do something that, by their age, hopefully they would already know how to do. So I would say it's, it's, a, it's a healthy mix. Do you also get requests from teachers? 
Yes, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, with the requests that I get from teachers because oftentimes it is something accidental or something in relation to the technology itself and the limitations of that technology. Sometimes it's an instance of a teacher not necessarily having the time to find what might be a simple answer. So, for example, like a password reset. Usually teachers are empowered to, to change the passwords of their students, uh, but a teacher might, you know, they might like grab my arm in the hallway and say, hey, I've got a class in two minutes. I need, really need this done. Can you help me? And in my mind, I'm saying, you know how to do this. You have the resources. You have the access to these resources. You could do this yourself. But I also see the limitations of, of their time, the, the need that they have for getting things done. Sometimes I'll relent. Sometimes I will, I will uh, help them out. Sometimes I won't. It uh, depends on prioritizing the day. But I would say with teachers, it's really, most of them are really capable and, and do a really good job of trying to find answers before they automatically go for submitting a ticket, but not always. You mentioned that they also talked to you about the limitations of the technology. Mm -hmm. um, what is that concerned with? So limitations with technology are probably, if I'm being honest, they probably are a lot of limitations of understanding of the technology. So for example, using Microsoft Sheets, or sorry, using Google Sheets is definitely a little different and not quite as robust as using Microsoft Excel. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of mathematic functions and formulas that you could use within Excel, but don't necessarily translate over to, to Google Sheets. Th those are usually the sort of technical limitations that I'm talking about. Of course, I think teachers use a lot of programs and software that that relate to maneuvering a, lar a large amount of data, for example, student information systems. And so really pulling data from those soft the, from, from that software is only as, as accurate as the data itself. So yeah. if there's bad data, then of course there's you're not going to get what you want. And that, that in and of itself can be a, a barrier to, to using the technology. Is there a specific system they use to collect that data? Uh, yeah, most of it is in a, it's in a system called Synergy. Um, that's, I think that's, that's in use at every district that I've worked at. And at this point, a lot of, a lot of school districts use Google Workspace. So Google does handle a lot of that data. And, and from what I understand, Google is very, they're very serious about data security and data safety. Um, I was just going to ask that, whether you run into issues with privacy and, and all of this. Absolutely. They honor and they recognize uh, a lot of the federal mandates and, and statutes of protecting children online. So giving uh, students privacy, basically keeping all of that student information under, under very strict lock and key. That's implemented with using two-factor, multi-factor authentication, pretty much all sorts of, uh, of security implementations that, that Google has access to. Generally speaking, with all of the really sensitive data, that's usually not kept somewhere on Google servers. That's usually kept on site. Have you ever used virtual reality classes with students? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Google actually has another, um, has a, a program called Google Cardboard. Um, and you, yes, yeah, I read about yeah, that. exactly. So, uh, so Beaverton School District, they actually had access to a couple thousand of these Google, uh, Google Cardboard glasses. And, um, we did a little bit of integration with Minecraft, uh, because it does have VR support, but not a ton. We did a little bit of it, but not a ton. I would love to play with it more, though. That was really, really fun. What other programs did you use? 
when I was working for Beaverton, uh, working uh, directly with the students, we did Lego robotics. Um, so from third grade to fifth grade, we were able to implement some of the Lego robotics kits that are available for purchase. We did 3D printing as well. So we used a couple MakerBot 3D printers as well as using uh, Tinkercad, which is, I think, is owned by Autodesk which makes AutoCAD, um, the kind of the main 3D printing, 3D modeling software. One of my favorite aspects of working with the older students in the elementary schools, uh, the fourth and fifth graders, was introducing them to digital media creation, so pretty much the entire Adobe suite. We didn't do a lot of deep work in it, uh, but I, we did do a lot of introduction to Photoshop and introduction to InDesign and introduction to, uh, to Illustrator. I also gave them introductions to to digital audio workstations. So I do I do a little bit of music production on my uh, on my spare time. I was able to introduce students to GarageBand on Mac or on Apple. Um, I showed them Ableton and Pro Tools. Uh, those are very expensive applications, so we didn't get to play with it too much. But uh, but at the very least, they were exposed to it, and and there were a lot of students that really really enjoyed it, and uh, were very inspired by it. That sounds amazing. It feels a bit like a privileged access to the digital work. I can't remember having anything similar <laughs> in my school time. Is that sort of common or getting more common for the um, American school system, do you think? I would say that uh, at the school that I worked at over at the Beaverton district, uh, that school was definitely not as economically disadvantaged as the schools that I'm working at now. So I would say it is more the exception than the rule. Uh, however, those technologies, they are getting cheaper. And there are a lot of companies and a lot of people that are recognizing that there is tremendous benefit in giving this technology or at least exposing this technology to younger people. Like I said, it definitely is more the exception than the rule. It's it's You don't see a 3D printer in every school in, in America. As much as that would be really awesome, I would love that to be the case. Um, at, you know, at this point, there's not even a, there's not even computers in every school in America. So, but like I said, as as uh, as the cost of that technology decreases and as the interest in that technology increases, um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be more common in the near future. And that sounds like a perfect. And <laughs> to our little chat, I Excellent. think we covered loads and loads of things. I'm awesome. really happy. Good. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. It was truly a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Ryan Cutsforth. We touched on many interesting topics, such as educational games, data privacy, and the large amount of barriers that families and students face when trying to get in touch with technology. Employing educational technology in schools is definitely dependent on adequate funding and the provision of the right resources. But this is only a first step. Teaching digital literacy to students, teachers and families is essential to be able to get the most out of these opportunities and increasingly digitalized world around us. Striving for that is a worthwhile task. But Ryan has also told me that being able to offer something positive, inspiring and creative to children with and through technology is what is so rewarding about his job, a mindset which I very much share. Let us close for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we will be here next week again talking to Dr. Pantelis Papadopoulos about audience response systems. Stay tuned and until next time, this is EduTech XP. Thank you.